Welcome to Scars to Stars, where conversations and personal stories let us know we are not alone. In this show, you will meet authors and speakers from our books and events as they share vulnerable personal stories to spread hope and inspire you through adversities in your own life. The world is a difficult place. You will find like-minded people here with kind hearts and supportive souls. I am your host, Dina Brown Mitchell. I am a suicide survivor and the founder of the Realize Foundation. I am so glad you are here. Let's dig into this meaningful conversation. I am honored today to have this conversation with Ann Moss Rogers, who lost her youngest son, Charles, on June 5th, 2015. So, Anne, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little more about your story. Uh, well, my picture of Charles is right there. Um, and around, I'd say, middle school, we started to notice that Charles's behavior started to change. We saw a lot of anxiety. And I can't say I saw a lot of what you would consider depression, like sadness. What I saw is an increase in risk-taking, which scared me. Um, his grades did start to drop a little bit, so we put him in private school. And this was, you know, a child who scored really high on IQ tests, so we, we didn't understand why that was happening. And later on, we saw sort of a change in friends. But I'd say that middle school went well enough. But I think his struggles for, um, he was starting to struggle with thoughts of suicide in uh, middle school. But he never told us. And this, uh, we found this out later, sort of from little anecdotal evidence from his friends. They would just tell us stories. Well, I remember this text he sent in the middle of the night, and it said this. So he gets to high school, and that's kind of when the wheels started to fall off the bus. And we noticed big shifts in his behavior, but he was also the funniest, most popular kid in school. And it was around his sophomore year. He is on the homecoming court. He's being escorted by his favorite teacher, Ms. Fretwell. And I mean, what a great day for a mom, right? But our family life had been chaos because he had started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And we didn't know why. Now to Charles, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol so that he didn't kill himself made a lot of sense. You know, it, it felt like it was the right solution. And when you're a teenager, I can understand that you don't like look in the future and see what kind of problems that might lead to. And his drug use started to escalate after, after that homecoming uh, court and we didn't know why, and we couldn't get any answers locally, and I kept asking for a diagnosis, but I never said, please give me a psychological evaluation, because I didn't know those words, right? And I regret that I didn't know those words, and I regret that 
I just didn't push harder. They would take our money. They would tell us he was high risk. And then they wouldn't tell us what high risk meant. You know, you can interpret that as, okay, he could get a drunk driving ticket, which in 2010 was what I thought maybe it could be. But I didn't know. And when I would call back afterwards to get clarification, they just didn't call me back. I mean, they'd cashed my check. They were done with me. And in his school experience, we found advocates, but we also found people with zero tolerance policies, one of which suspended him for having a panic attack. And it wasn't because he was violent or he threatened anybody. He just was in detention and an administrator came in and started to yell at him and he just crumbled and started to cry and said, I I really want to talk to my mother. And she took that to mean that he wanted to go home. In other words, wanted to be suspended. (laughs) I don't know quite how she made that jump, but I tried to go in and change that outcome, but they didn't budge. I mean, so that was really disappointing. And so I was seeing that administrators were not supporting us in our efforts to help our son, who wasn't like this big discipline problem. So what finally happened is that his drug use escalated to a point that we had to kidnap our son out of his bed and take him to a wilderness program. And Deanna, you don't do that because you caught your kid with a beer and a joint, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you do that because you've got no other choice. I mean, I had to go to a hotel room with my husband and plan this clandestine kidnapping. It felt ugly and slimy and deceitful. And I remember he came in our room the night before he was supposed to be kidnapped and starts talking about the prom and what he's going to wear. And when he, we're trying to smile, and I remember when he left the room, I just, I fell to the floor in tears. I, I was just crushed. And so he was kidnapped. He was taken to the wilderness program. And that is actually where we got a diagnosis finally. They did a full psychological evaluation, what would have cost us at home $50 if anybody had ever uh, gone to the trouble of doing one. And after this, they recommended therapy to boarding school. So even a more expensive step. And we didn't have a boarding school bank account. And basically, our home equity loan paid for um, the wilderness and the um, therapeutic boarding school. So he comes back in 2014, having spent about 22 months outside our home in some kind of placement. He's not fixed. I didn't expect him to come home and be fixed. We did a considerable family work when he was at the therapeutic boarding school, driving up there to upstate New York from Virginia, or flying up there when we could afford it, or my mother or mother-in-law sent us money for a ticket. So we did considerable amount of family work, but by now Charles had kind of gotten jaded against the mental health system because 
And it's still kind of this way. There's a lot of shame right where you expect there to be support. And um, that is starting to shift. But in back then in 2014, I, it was hard to find supportive people. Most people were still kind of shaming me and him and even worse in the mental health and addiction space. And of course, what they always want to do is separate. So they want to say, well, you know, let's put your suicidal ideation on hold and you go get that drug problem fixed. I mean, you know, it's to make any sense. So really, the best thing is to start to treat and talk about it together, but nobody wants to do that or they don't feel qualified to do that or they don't really make the attempt to do that. So he ended up, you know, we tried to set up therapeutic appointments, we tried to set up family therapy, and he was just an expensive no-show at this point. And he's 20, uh, 19 years old, so we can't make him. And he ends up getting a job, and when he gets a job, we thought, oh, man, that is magic wand. You know, he has a job now, and now he has a sense of purpose. Well, what that did is it gave him money to buy more drugs, and he ended up becoming addicted to heroin. So, you know, it was a once in a while thing, but once he had a job, it became a regular gig. And unfortunately, it was June 5th, 2015. We're sitting in a car in a parking lot and the policeman tells us that they had found our son dead that morning. And I was sure it was overdose. We had just recently found out that my son was addicted to heroin. So that was naturally the first thing that came to my head. We're screaming and wailing. And my husband pauses in the conversation and he says, how did he die? And I remember thinking, that is such a crazy question. And it's not. But in that moment, there's just all this noise in your head and you can't think straight. And the, the policeman said suicide, and the method left no question. I just didn't get it. I had no idea that my son struggled with thoughts of suicide. And looking back, I now see that he displayed classic signs of suicidal thoughts, one of which he posted on um, Twitter, if I died, no one would notice for 30 days, which could have been one of the bullet points under the phrase, what do people say when they're thinking of suicide? So they feel like they're burdened. They feel like they're worthless. And my son expressed that, but I didn't have that bucket to put it in because none of the mental health counselors, after all the money we spent, no one ever talked to us and said that it was a risk. And then the, all those sessions, it had to have come up, especially since he shared his notebooks of rap lyrics with clear intent for, and planning for suicidal thoughts and, and ending his life. Now, we never saw these, but he shared them with others. And I know he shared them with counselors, but nobody ever had that conversation with us, even when he was underage. So if it's not on your radar, you can't come up with that as a possibility. 
And unfortunately, it's on my radar now after he died. And what I'd like to do is have people start to talk about it now before it becomes an after somebody dies, especially with youth, because we know what can prevent it. We know the triggers. We know how to treat it. We know what they say. But we're still not having that conversation because there is so much shame and stigma and fear. It's really fear driving. Well, if I talk about it, that means they'll kill themselves or it'll put the idea in their head. And think for a minute. If that put the idea in someone's head, how about all those great lectures that you've had with your children? How many, how, how often has that lecturing worked? Never. <laughs> and, you know, you told your kid not to drink. And, of course, what did he do? Went to a keg party and he probably, he or she drank, you know, despite what you said. Yeah. So... Talking about it doesn't give them the idea, and it's been proven five times over in multiple studies. Mm-hmm. And we know that it actually encourages people who struggle to reach out for help. We also know, and from writing, so I wrote my first book was Diary of a Broken Mind, which is in the background here. And that's a memoir, and you will not be able to put it down. The second book I wrote with co-writer Kim O'Brien, who is a researcher and a licensed clinical social worker, and it's called Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk. So while I'm interested in prevention from every angle, I really like going upstream before children get to a place of crisis and start to recognize when are those times that teens struggle? What are the triggers that are that can potentially be that last straw? Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do in the school environment to create a foundation of suicide prevention? And really, the book is not about just having suicide education. That's really about 10% of it. It's mostly focusing on student wellness and coping strategies and teaching in a way that we're not teaching that memorization and that kind of thing, but encouraging more connection and encouraging more critical thinking skills. So they think through and do more problem solving and allowing kids to tell their own story and to apply their own life experience as possible solutions to to issues that they're facing. And I'll be honest with you, when Wiley Publishing called me up and asked me, did I want to write this book? I said yes immediately. But then when I hung up, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a pretty, you know, pretty heavy burden. This isn't like, you know, how to ride a bike. This is 
telling, you know, it's got to be, I had to cite sources and we had to cite sources. Mm-hmm. I had to figure out a co-writer, Kim O'Brien. I had to invite the co-writer, then figure out how we were going to work together. We had to get people to interview because when you say something in a book like this, you can't say it without citing a source or some of your own research. And both Kim and I have our own research that we could integrate, but we decided what we would do was interview some suicidologists and teachers who'd been through the suicide of a student, student um, school counselors and school social workers, principals, uh, nonprofit leaders like the Trevor Project and the uh, Jed Foundation and uh, American Association of Suicidology and Riverside Trauma about uh, postvention. So we, we covered prevention, intervention, and postvention. But I'm going to shut up for a minute and let let you say something, Deanna, because I've like talked the whole time. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Um... You are a wealth of knowledge, and I, when I first met you last year, I was very impressed by the amount of of data and and knowledge you had around the subject. So appreciate you sharing. I do want to to emphasize what you said about you know there's there is no proof that asking someone if they're gonna if they're planning to harm themselves gives them the idea or increases their risk. Um, we have a board member who is a first responder. He's a um, he's part of the Echo Fast team in the Northeast region, and he is he also says that every time we talk to people, um, that you know, asking people as a paramedic, they're supposed to ask every patient that they see, and I didn't know that, but he said, you know, there's no there's no data saying that asking someone if they're having ideation or thinking of harming themselves, that that gives them any more risk than they already have. And I think sometimes it makes them think twice because now someone else is recognizing what maybe is going on. And I can speak from my personal experience. If, if I would have thought that anyone knew that I was having ideation, it probably would have made me get help faster. But in my case, no one knew that but me. And so I just wanted to emphasize that. And also the, what you said about fear is that, you know, the minute you say the word suicide, people tend to shut down because they don't know what to say and they don't want to say the wrong thing. So it's like they don't realize that just being there or saying hello or giving somebody a hug would matter, you know, just to be there and listen would matter. Um, you don't always have to have the right words. You just, you definitely don't want to tell somebody to think positive. You know, there's some things like that, that you don't, we have some other videos that talk about those kind of things, but um, I think that was very important. The only other thing I want to mention real quick is there is a lady who um, I've become friends with who has an organization called Bionic and it's an acronym for believe it or not, I care. And she's in Colorado, and she um, it, she was a school counselor at the Columbine High School and at Green Mountain High School, which both had, um, well, Columbine had the shooting, I think that was about 20 years ago, and then Green Mountain had has had a 
a, quite a few suicides in a short amount of time years ago. And so she started this program as a school counselor where they have kids that are on committees that do outreach to other kids when maybe they're not at school or they had a death in their family or it's obvious that something's going on. So I just wanted to mention that because I was hoping to have her on, but that didn't work out. So since we're talking about schools and teachers, um, I wanted to also just mention that because she does um, help people set up those programs in schools. Oh, that's awesome. I mentioned in the book two official programs that are like evidence-based or evidence-informed, and one of those is Sources of Strength, Okay. and the other is the Hope Squad. Okay. And then, so those, and I, I've mentioned several programs in the book, book. Also, there's Signs of Suicide, but the Sources of Strength and Hope Squad are more student-based. And then I've also got a section in the book on how to start a mental wellness club. You know, what does that look like? What? And then I use three case studies of students who started one in their school. So the students that I interviewed kind of freelanced their own mental health clubs. And what did they do? And what did they focus on? And then um, Mike Rykoff from the uh, Peyton Rykoff Foundation, and I think that's Nebraska, he goes um, through a couple of schools. They go through Bring Change to Mind, and they have a mental wellness club, and you can kind of log in and get the ideas. And so they kind of have a more templated version of a student program. I think it is absolutely vital to get students engaged in every aspect of the suicide prevention, including helping develop a commemoration policy for the school. Lots of times we'll hear about, okay, I'll hear from a parent, my child, my Katie died by suicide and they did this big whole page of this one football player who died from heat stroke, but they did not commemorate my daughter because she died by suicide. So it's absolutely vital that schools have a commemoration policy that treats all student deaths equally. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to memorialize somebody in the yearbook, you memorial, you know, you give them the same size space and maybe it's just a quarter page each. But it's really more about putting your grief into action mm -hmm. with, you know, prevention or if somebody died of heat stroke, then, you know, maybe you would have more education around that. If it's suicide, you'd, ha you'd have a, a, a school's wide walk. Um, I want to prevent suicide in so, such and such as name. So because there are all sorts of ways, you know, if you commemorate everybody that dies in your school with a tree or some kind of stone marker, well, after a while, it can kind of look rangy unkempt and basically like cemetery and that you you want to avoid that 
So it, it gets you thinking about this because at some point you're going to lose someone at your school, whether it's a teacher or a student, it's going to happen. If you have a policy, then you have a structure around which you can fashion what you're going to do going forward. And you've got something in writing that is written and getting students help up front. So, you know, sometimes kids will have these spontaneous memorials. Well, you know, what do you do with that? Um, and lots of principals want to come and just rip it all down. And in my own experience, I know when there was a child who died by suicide at Charles's school two years before he did, the, the neighbors actually went and these kids did graffiti in a tunnel. And that wasn't the right thing to do, but that was an expression of their grief. Mm-hmm. And they called the cops. And, I mean, they just made it a big, ugly thing when they just needed to be more compassionate. What they ended up doing is the students came and they apologized and they said, you know, it's just an outpouring or expression of our grief. There were messages of love. And it wasn't the right thing to do, but they said, you know, we'll clean it up. And they had made a date to clean it up, and that was going to be their ritual for coming together for the love of their friend and doing something together for the good of the community, kind of undo this thing they had done. Mm-hmm. Well, what the community did instead is that they hired a company before that date and they cleaned it up before the kids could come do their thing. And then they um, had the cops, they pressured the police to uh, charge them with felonies and see that they never came on school grounds again, because apparently they did some graffiti on the side of the building. And it wasn't like lots of graffiti. It was just a little bit, So the kids were grieving, and they basically shunned them and ousted them, putting them at higher risk for suicide or early death, drug addiction, or other substance misuse or self-harm. So how we treat those incidents afterwards also prevents future suicide. And... And administrators can always jump to the wrong conclusions there. So having a book that just kind of outlines the basic steps of what to do. So even though it's a teacher's guide, principals will get something out of this. And then, I've, you know, we have a list of resources at the end. Here's a memorial guide. Here you, so here's a school policy that you can start with, you know, and you can make it your own. And if you need help, you can hire the Trevor Project and they'll help you with that school policy mm-hmm. so that you can get those policies in place before you have some terrible tragedy at your school. Because at some point, something's going to happen at your school and you need to be prepared with at least some basic policies that you might not think are important. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, when you're dealing with the postvention of a suicide, that's not the time to create it then because you can't think. 
That's true. It's almost like, um, and I, I don't know, you might know more about this than me, but it just seems like if we could have some sort of class, I mean, I'm guessing it would be some kind of in science about what even is mental health and what does depression look like? What does anxiety look like? What does ADHD look like? For the people who don't experience any of that and don't understand it, it's like, it, and maybe I'm getting off topic here, but it just came No, no, this is, this is definitely like what I included in the book. All, all these, you know, what do you do in the classroom? That is, that's the main focus of the book is what have teachers done yeah. to integrate that education? I had a chem. There's a chemistry teacher who mm-hmm. integrates a mental health check-in every Monday, and then I've got a health and PE teacher that that's what she does in her school. Is she teaches the mental health segment, and she has them do a PowerPoint presentation, and they pick from a list of ADHD, uh, eating disorders, or various mental health issues, and they do a presentation and they do a three-minute podcast mm-hmm. on it. So that is the education piece, but also yeah. uh, they, the problem-solving piece. How can you integrate that? And one Spanish teacher in Kansas, one thing that she did was she had them do a Dear Abby assignment and have to do it all in Spanish. So it's for her more advanced classes. And because they want to express themselves and do a good job, they are really inspired to learn their Spanish to be able to answer these questions well and to be able to present their narrative. So they have to use a real issue they faced And then she codes them so that they're anonymous. She passes them out to the students. And then the kids kind of answer in a Dear Abby way, you know, like this is how I would approach this situation. And the kid will end up getting more than one answer. And then she pulls them back up and redistributes them. So it gives kids... Number one, the ability to see that other people are struggling with some pretty big issues. Mm-hmm. And so they get the feeling that they're not alone. It's not us saying, by the way, you're not alone. It's very different from getting the feeling that you're not alone. Then they also have the ability to learn Spanish and to learn to problem solve. So She's integrated this into her teaching curriculum, Mm -hmm. and they're more motivated to learn the language because they want to express themselves. She also does a social justice movie. They have to write it and film it and then have a discussion. And she has said those have been the most meaningful part of her teaching career. And all of the different strategies that she's integrated have made her teaching more meaningful to her. And it's just made all the difference. And it's because she went through a suicide 
at her school of one of her students. And she said, never again, I'm doing everything I can. And she also talks about grief. And she has, instead of Cinco de Mayo, she does Dia Los Muertos, Day of the Dead, where they celebrate their loved ones. And they talk about someone who's died. And that Spanish day is a really cool way to celebrate death. And we don't talk about it a lot. So it gives students the opportunity to talk about people that they've loved and lost because we don't do that very well either. That's true. That's incredible. I love, I, I love your ideas. I mean, I mean, that, I also think that, that, you know, if people were more familiar, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about adults for the, for a long time in this realm, but lately the teenagers have really been on my heart. And I think that, you know, bullying and social media and all of this stuff is, is I think at the root of a lot of the problems that we are seeing in the teenage sector. And I think that, if people understood it more, just like if adults understood it more, we would be more kind to each other and we would be more empathetic because, you know, if somebody has a broken leg, people can see that they have a broken leg, they're on crutches, they need help, they open the door for them or whatever, carry their books for them or whatever it is. But when yeah. it's when it's a mental health issue, you can't see it. So we need no. to talk about it more so people understand what people are dealing with. And I think it's so easy for us to hide it because we don't want people to know, or we don't think we matter, or we don't think they'll understand. But it's like, if, it, if it's part of our school and part of our education, maybe it will become more normalized and it will, people will have the same empathy as they would for a physical ailment. Yeah, so nobody ever suicides because of bullying alone. Bullying is a contributing factor to a child that is already vulnerable to suicide. So you could call it a trigger, but when somebody suicides, it is typically the result of multiple factors. Usually there's an underlying mental health or trauma in in that child's life. And the triggers, the top triggers for uh, teens and young adults before they take their life are, are two things. One of them is relationship disruption, and the other is transition. So relationship disruption could be bullying. It could be a fight with a parent. It could be a fight with the best friend. It could be a romantic falling out. It could be leaving one's connections at one school and going to a new school where they don't have any connections. Mm -hmm. So when teenagers reach out to me, that's really common is some type of relationship disruption and they feel worthless as a result of it. The second is transitions. So where we see a lot of difficulty and not just the big transitions of middle school to high school, 
college to real life or high school to college. Those are the big ones. But we see a lot of kids' suicide in those many transitions from spring break back to school or um, for, for right before summer break or right before Christmas break or, you know, going to or from. It seems to be that leaving when they have a lot of support and there there's this fear that when they go back, they won't have that level of support and connectedness anymore. Hmm. So that that was from my conversation uh, with Dr. Victor Schwartz, who is the CMO of the Jed Foundation. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And why aren't we sharing that with young adults? I mean, I don't think we have to come out and say, well, this is when most people die by suicide. I just think we need to say, well, we know that transitions are difficult for teens and young adults. Mm -hmm. At least set that expectation. Tell them this is going to be an issue and this is a, an issue with teenagers. How might how, what are some coping strategies that we might use to manage those transitions and also set the expectation that, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's not going to feel good sometimes, but if you feel that way, how many other people do? And when you're having those first week discussions in your classroom, maybe especially now, right after a pandemic and going back to school. How about an anonymous bulletin board about how people feel about coming back to school? Because they're excited and they're scared at the same time. And then there's a percentage of them that are dreading it. You know, they've gained weight, they've lost weight, they've gotten taller, they've gotten hairier, their voices have changed, their hair's grown longer, it's a different color. And there's been a lot of disordered eating in this pandemic that's been a really, that's had a pretty serious uptick. Substance misuse and overdose, a lot, those kids are coming back having brought their they're going back and they want to fulfill hopes and dreams, but they're also bringing their losses, their food and housing insecurities back with them. And we need to understand that these are human beings that need that connection and support. And how are we going to do that in our schools? And what changes can we make to support our student and make student wellness, the core of of our academics and not scores, our nice shiny scores, because 2% of them are going to use algebra in their lifetime. But 100% of them will use their, their coping strategies that they learned. So we should be embedding those social, emotional, learning, and dialectical, behavioral, therapy-type exercises that you can turn into fun games into our classrooms and make it 
make it fun and engaging and get those kids connecting with each other because the more connections kids have, the less likely they'll feel isolated. And that child that's being bullied, the more connections they have, the less likely they'll be bullied for one. And if they are bullied, the more likely they will, they are to tell someone what is happening. It's when children start to kind of self-isolate that those issues start to grow. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, my own high school experience, um, I was so involved in so many things, you know, sports and dance team, cheerleading, all this. But I didn't, I never felt like I fit in with that crowd, even though I was part of it. And so sometimes it was, you know, people that knew me back then never saw anything that was out of order to them about me because I was always involved in everything and seemed to be popular and all that. But it was like, you're in the inner circle, but you still don't feel like you belong there. And that's, that's something that is hard to recognize, I think, um, as a kid. And then I had a, a pretty serious boyfriend in high school. And when we broke up was not my choice. So I was pretty devastated. And I even changed high schools and went to live with my grandmother over all of that because I was, I was so devastated. And so I don't really, I still don't really know how that connects to the rest of my journey. Um, but I know that it started somewhere around there. Um, and it, it's, it can be pretty devastating, you know, things that as adults we think are, are normal things we have to deal with when you're in high school. It's, it's traumatic. So. It is. And I get messages of working with a child in Saudi Arabia now who is dealing with a lot of the things you just mentioned in a whole different country. Yeah. And of course, I can't encourage her to tell someone there because it is so stigmatized and it's likely to put her more at risk. Yeah. And, you know, I have to recognize that it's a different country. Mm -hmm. Um, There are more resources here now for that than there used to be. But I do an exercise with kids, a workshop. Mm-hmm. And they come and they put up post-it notes of how they're feeling, of one issue that they're dealing with. And then everybody sits down. And they don't have any hesitation coming up and putting up post-it note. And it's anonymous. And then I go up there and I kind of read all of the ones. And then I have, if it's a small class, I'll have them come up and read. Or I'll leave them up there and they come up and look at them later. But when I'm reading over them, they start to cry because I'll say, oh, there are three people in here that have been raped. This is a class of 100 people. Three have been raped in this class that I know of, and it could have been more. And I said, it looks like several people are struggling with gender identity. Somebody has a stuttering issue, and he struggled with that. And, I mean, I'll just go over each one, and I'll just kind of hit the highlights. And they start to cry because 
for the first time, they realize that their classmates are suffering with some problems every bit as big and as devastating as their own, and some even more so. And then we'll start to talk about unhealthy coping strategies and healthy coping strategies. So then, you know, it segues into that. Mm -hmm. And then before they have, before they, and I don't tell them where the coping strategies go. Mm -hmm. I only tell them, I only ask questions. And, um, you know, before they leave, they have to, they have to think of two trusted adults that they would talk to. And I ask them to think about which of the coping strategies from the healthy column that they developed, that their friends, you know, contributed to. What were some of those ideas that they could actually use to, you know, manage a difficult situation? Because I can't change the situation Mm -hmm. but I can manage how I react to it. There, there's so many things out there that are not within our control. We can't make somebody else love us when we still love them. Yeah. We just can't. So how are we going to manage that pain? You know, and we've already talked about the fact that numbing that pain leaves you stuck there. So if you choose drugs and alcohol, Mm-hmm. you will remain stuck there. And I've met dads or moms that say, well, the only way I could deal with the loss of my child is to drink every night. And seven years later, they're in not a better place than they were a month after it happened. So in order to heal, you have to feel. And when you hurt, those are the emotional building blocks to healing. Mm -hmm. that's how you find healing and it hurts like crazy trust me I know um nothing nothing took me to my knees like losing my child to suicide and this went on for years and I remember getting up in the morning and making the pledge to go running but sometimes I would have to curl up on the floor two or three times before I even put my shoes on because those grief waves had hit me so hard that it literally took me to the floor, curled up in a field position, crying on the hardwood. <laughs> and then when I, you know, when it would lift, I got up and I put on a sock <laughs> and then another sock and then the shoes. Yeah. I exercised a dialectical behavior therapy called opposite action. I wanted to get back in bed and crawl in bed and fall asleep because when I was asleep, I wasn't suffering and I was dreaming about my child and he wasn't dead when I was asleep. But when I was awake, I knew he was dead. And by exercising that opposite action and saying, okay, what I want to do is that, but I'm going to do the opposite because I know that's not good for me. Mm-hmm. Over time, that became a habit. And over time, that is what helped me heal and find peace. I feel pretty quickly. Not, I mean, 
you know, it wasn't a month, let's put it that way, it was years. But writing, I mean, I had this whole toolbox of strategies that I use, support group, writing, running, and exposing myself to extreme cold. That was another one. So in the wintertime when it was 12 degrees, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going out there running, as long as there was no ice on the ground. Because then I got the combined combination of exercising and extreme cold, both of which reset your brain. Mm -hmm. It works. It, It really does work. I mean, it was hard to get out. I mean, my chest felt heavy. My arms felt heavy. My legs felt, I mean, it felt like I was dragging a lead behind me. But by going out there and doing opposite action, it helped. Mm-hmm. It helped a lot. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is, is um, you know, for your own recovery is what a lot of people go through that have ideation. Because exactly. we need to do the same thing to heal. It's, it's, right. It works for everyone. It does. And, and that is why I tell my story about how I healed to high school students because they take bits and pieces of what worked for me and they take away what will work for them. Not all of them work for them, but I've got like seven or eight strategies that I talk about were core for me. Yeah. And they recognize that. And then they're like, Oh, that one will work for me. And then they've made a list So when they leave that class, they have an idea of what goes in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I can't do years of therapy in in an hour and a half, but I can raise their awareness that, you know, you have to, you can't heal if you can't feel. And you've got to let the hurt in. You don't need to push it away. You're not supposed to do everything by yourself. And... Here are some strategies that have worked for a lot of people, including your peers. Yeah. I love that if you can't, you can't heal if you can't feel because Mm -hmm. um, I can relate to that. I know you can. And you're an empath, Deanna. I can tell just by (laughs) looking at you on this video. I mean, that, that is your natural inclination is that you are an empath and you feel everything very very deeply and there are children my son was like that too charles he felt everything so there are just some people that feel things more deeply and what is so so important about people like that is you all are the ones that will bring us together you know i mean that's a gift and you take it for granted and you probably felt shame around it and you feel guilty and like I'm too sensitive but those are the people that others who are struggling talk to that's who they trust that's who they go to though the empaths are the people that that bond with them and that they trust and they want to talk to. It's true. I think I get it from my mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but it, it is true. And I think it's for so many years, I did not um, let that side of me show as much. I mean, I did in a business sense, but not in a personal sense. And I think that's another lesson to younger people is to embrace those things that are unique about yourself. Yeah. To see them. And and I think reframing is another important skill. And we're coming close to the end, but I have to share this story with you. So I have a channel on YouTube that some kids will go to that channel and look up a way to kill themselves. And I have a video that doesn't give instructions, but instead just tells a story and it's 55 second video. And it basically says, I understand your pain. So this kid wanted to kill himself after his girlfriend friend zoned him, which means she says, I want to only be friends. And I mean, he was just madly in love with her and had been for three years, pined away. And, you know, she, his whole world was all about her. So we do comments back and forth. And I guess it's about comment number 32. He comes back and he goes, I've decided not to kill myself because if I do, there would be zero percent chance of her ever wanting to date me if I'm if I'm dead. (laughs) I thought that was a great reframing. So it was like, okay, my chances are pretty low. But if I die by suicide, they're zero (laughs) percent. That is that is a very good um, explanation of reframing. That's cog- cognitive reframing. Yes. <laughs> Looked at it differently. I thought, oh, my gosh, this kid's 15. That is brilliant. I took a screenshot, and guess what is in my presentations? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Anne Moss, I am so thankful for you, and I know that your – Um, speaking is not only helping children, but I assume that it's also helping parents. So I feel like you are a very strong person with so much information and wisdom around the subject. So thank you. Thank you. I've gotten a lot of training and a lot of research behind that. It's taken a long time. Well, it's definitely needed. And it's definitely appreciated that you would share it with me today. And maybe we can have another conversation soon. Um, That'd be great. But I just want to remind everybody that, you know, if you have people close to you that you see signs of, of struggle or pain, to have the conversation with them and let them know you are there, even if it's just to listen. And with that said, you can follow this page for more live conversations and discussions. And remember, it's all about having the conversation. Absolutely. We're so happy you joined us for this conversation. My wish is that you found comfort and hope in your own unique situation. If you resonated with our message, please head over to therealizedfoundation.org where you can apply to write your own story in one of our books. You can also download our 60 Ideas for Self-Care on the resources page. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, 
You are not alone. You are worthy and you are enough.